If you would please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, if you would read with me just verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So Jesus is now condescending to speak to another church in our sermon series through Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. We've looked at the church in Ephesus, the church in Smyrna, and now Jesus has a word to say to the church in Pergamum. And he introduces himself as the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Now why would Jesus say that? Why would Jesus have John, through an angel, deliver this message? Well, this is an important reminder before we look at what he has to say to the church in Pergamum. This is an important reminder of why we should trust him who says it and how he knows what to say. And it's because he is the one with the sharp two-edged sword. And this sword throughout the scriptures is always used to uh, symbolize two important things. And the first thing it symbolizes is judgment. The one who speaks to the church in Pergamum is the one who will and is ready to judge. We see this really all throughout the scriptures in Romans chapter 13, for example, when Paul talks about how the civil government, the civil magistrates, the state is allowed to exercise capital punishment. He describes the state as they do not bear the sword in vain. Swords are used to kill. Swords are used to execute. They are used to judge, to destroy. But this is seen more clearly at the end of the book of Revelation. Chapter 19, verse 15 describes Jesus this way, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So Revelation 19 describes this sharp sword as coming out of his mouth, symbolizing it is the word of God that he uses this to destroy, to strike down nations, to rule over them. The word of God is a sword that will judge, that can destroy. We see the judge of Christ in all of these things, but we also know that the sword is symbolic for discernment. Omniscience. In other words, you don't have to turn there, but there's the famous passion passage in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, where it says, The word of God is a sharp two-edged sword. And what is it able to do? To pierce through human souls, to separate soul from spirit and body, and to see their true intentions. The sword is almost like a spiritual scalpel that Jesus uses his word to penetrate and to reveal who we are, what we've actually done. So when Jesus describes himself as the one with the sharp sword, he is describing himself as the one who sees all things. He knows the intentions and the works of every person. You can hide from the world. You can disguise yourself and pretend to be something you're not from men. But Jesus has the sharp sword and he will cut through your play. He will cut through what you're pretending to be, and on Judgment Day, He will know. And He will use that sword to subdue nations, to judge sin. And so it is our omniscient judge who speaks to us today, who is speaking to Pergamum today. 
But one last thing before we really examine what he has to say, this sharp two-edged sword which comes out of the mouth of Jesus, which is the very word of God, while this should be sobering and somewhat intimidating, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This should also be a great encouragement. Why? Because we have that sword in our presence today. What this also reminds us of is in 2 Corinthians, Paul describes the Christian life in terms of spiritual warfare. And he says the church rages war against the world, but not a carnal war. He says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal weapons. They're not literal swords, not literal guns. But we have a spiritual weapon. The word of God by which we tear down strongholds and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We have the most powerful weapon in all the universe and we carry it around in our hands every single day. So may this be a reminder before we even get into the sermon today to let loose the word of God. Unleash it. Don't be afraid to use it, to memorize it, to hold people accountable to it. It is a weapon, and we are not called to shield it. In apologetics, in our homes, in our churches, there is no place on earth where God says, you put the word of God away and just live according to man's reasoning. You don't need my word in this realm. No, this is a sword we never put away. It is the word of God. It is a sharp two-edged sword. So he comes to this church with that sword. And let's read what he has to say. If you would follow along with me in verses 13 through 17. Jesus tells the church in Pergamum this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus begins, he addresses the church in Pergamum same way, very similar at least to how he dresses Ephesus. If you remember from a few couple weeks ago when we described Ephesus, he gave Ephesus their strength, but also their weakness. And he does the same thing to Pergamum. He tells them their strength, but then he also tells them their weakness. And I describe these two things as, if I were to describe the church in Pergamum, I would describe this, them this way. They are courageous, but compromised. This is a courageous church, but this is also a compromised church. You see, like the church in Ephesus, there was the Nicolaitan heresy going on in this community, but unlike the church in Ephesus, Pergamum did not have the discernment 
in the knowledge or love of God's word to see this error and fight it. Instead, they embraced the error. They let the error into their church. They let the error into their lives. They lacked discernment. And in so doing, they became a compromised church. They were were Christians, but they didn't look like Christians. But that's what they had in common with Ephesus. But they had something in common with last week's church, which is Smyrna. And what they had in common with Smyrna is this was a heavily persecuted area. And I would argue that their persecution was different. Their persecution was Roman persecution. It was Rome who was persecuting these people. And we say that because Pergamum was, some secular scholars refer to it as the Rome of the East. In other words, the Roman Empire had, this was like a hub city for the Roman Empire. Roman worship was huge in this area. The idolatries of Rome, the love of Rome, the sacrifices of Rome. This was like a patriot city for the Roman Empire. And so they were living in the midst of a wicked pagan Roman Empire who was hating Christians. And they were enduring wicked persecution from Rome, but they were enduring well. So this was a compromised church, but it was a courageous church. And so we're going to look at these two elements and see what we can learn from Pergamum. We're going to look at their positive example, and we're going to look at their negative example and be reminded of what we can learn from them. So let's begin with their positive example, as that's what Jesus begins with. Let's look at their courage. This truly was a courageous church. Verse 13, if you will. I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus reminds this church five, or forgive me, two times, you are living the same city with Satan. Satan is your neighbor. Satan has taken up residence in your town. Jesus is acknowledging your persecution is really bad. I see it. I know. It's so bad that Jesus symbolically describes where they live as Satan's hometown. What is Jesus telling them? Did Satan literally build a literal throne and literal Satan literally sat on it? No. This is metaphoric language for Satan having a unique stronghold on this city. Satan was uniquely active in this city. He was raging war and persecuting the church with more ferocity, more intensity in this city than he likely was anywhere else in the world. This was a a place that Satan had his eye on and this church is caught right in the middle of it. You live in Satan's hometown. Satan is the king of this town. He sits on the throne. He is the god of that city. He dwells there. So their persecution, we know, was intense. But how did they respond? Well, they stared down the demons with courage. He says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Nothing Satan was doing, nothing Satan could throw at them, no persecution caused them to say, you know what, Christ isn't worth this. 
They held fast. As a matter of fact, it got so bad that Jesus even mentions Antipas. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. We don't know who this person was. We know his name. We know that he was a special servant to God. But this is his 15 minutes of fame, if you will. We don't know anything about him other than that he was a faithful martyr. But why would Jesus bring it in? I think what this tells us is we can make some assumptions here. I think Antipas was some kind of leader among the churches. The reason I think he got this shout out is because I think we can assume he had some kind of influence. He was some kind of leader. And so when Satan managed to kill him, the expectation was this is really going to do damage now. They've lost one of their most important leaders. Imagine trying to win the Revolutionary War if George Washington was killed day one. It's hard for organizations to lose leaders. It's, it's, it's a terrible thing when a leader is killed. It, it, it brings instability and fear into the rest of the organization. So was he a pastor? Well, I, I don't know what kind of influence he had. But he had some kind of influence that when Satan took him down, Satan said, okay, this will be the straw that breaks the camel's back. They're done. Now they're kaput. But how did they respond when they saw their brother murdered, killed in their presence? Did they respond with fear? No. They were courageous. We're going to keep going. We're going to continue to proclaim Christ. You can kill us. You can take us away. This was a courageous church that stared straight into the face of these demons and was unflinching. Will we be courageous? How might we respond if Satan sets up shop in Roswell? How might we respond if New Mexico becomes Satan's new home state? Will we stare in the demons with courage? Will we allow horrible terrible persecutions to some of our beloved members, beloved family members, will we allow that to make us stumble? You see, the church in Pergamum is to be an example to us. And here's why they're such an important example. Because they're people just like you and me. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus was fully human. I'm not trying to teach a heresy here. Jesus was also a person just like you and me. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes it's really, really difficult for us to believe like I am truly called to walk just as Jesus did because after all, he was the son of God. He was fully God and I am not that. And I think that's why Paul in his letters even says things like, look to the leaders of your church and, and, and copy their faith, model their faith. Right? Right? That shocks a lot of people because in our very pious age, we want to say things like, no, 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 you should not try to be like anybody but Jesus. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Paul says, model yourself after me as I model myself after Christ. We are supposed to look at the faithful, holy people in our midst and say, I want to be like that. And the reason I think that's so beneficial is because we relate to them. We realize you're a person just like me. If you can do it, I can do it. 
That's the example the apostles set. That's the example Christ set in his incarnation. And that is highlighted in Pergamum. We don't know anything. We don't know that there was any quote-unquote superstars of the faith in this church other than Antipas, but we don't even know anything about him. These aren't the patriarchs. We're not talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. We're talking about a bunch of nobodies, a bunch of no-names who had the courage to stand down Satan. So what does that tell us? We can do it too. If Pergamum can endure this and get through this, why can't Redeemer? This should give us great hope that the Spirit is equally powerful, not just in the giants of the faith like Abraham and David and Paul and Peter, but the Spirit is active among us too. We have all the tools we need to be courageous. If Pergamum can do it, why can't we? This was a courageous people, and God bless them. May we have this same kind of courage no matter what comes our way. However, while their courage was something we need to look to and try to model and copy, they had a level of compromise that we need to stay far away from. This was a courageous church, but nonetheless it was a compromised church. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We've heard a little bit about the Nicolaitans two weeks ago. Apparently there was a Nicolaitan cult influence in this area as well. But the church was not doing a good job fighting against it. The church has essentially embraced it. There are Nicolaitans in the community, and Jesus tells us in verse 15 that there are people in the church who hold to their teachings. There are people in the church who have been deceived into thinking that this new Nicolaitan heretical cult group is essentially the same as Christianity, that their beliefs and their practices, they fit with Christianity. And, and here's why I say that, because notice, here's what you can't say about Pergamum. Pergamum did not abandon the faith and choose the faith of the Nicolaitans. Jesus is very explicit, or what we just look at the courage, they did not deny the faith. They think they're Christians, they think they're Christians and they're standing up to Satan's persecution as Christians. But the problem is, is they've allowed false worldly theology to corrupt their Christianity. The Nicolaitan have a stronghold in the church now. And it's interesting, Jesus, uh, he, he speaks to these what would have been mostly Jewish believers by appealing to a Jewish story, an Old Testament story, to really drive the point home and to remind them, this is not new. This, this is how Satan has been working for a long time. This is not new. You're not the first people that have ever been prone to this. And what story does it bring? He brings up a narrative from the book of Numbers. Now, this is, covers multiple chapters, so we're not going to read that entire story, but let me just briefly summarize it for you. As Israel is working into the Promised Land, they go into the Moabite region, and there's a king, Balak, who sees the Israelites, and he knows the stories. He knows the people they've slaughtered. 
He knows the victories God has given them. He knows what happened in Egypt. And he can see from his high place, he can see just how vast they are. And he says, the people of Israel are coming in and they're going to win. What do I do? And so there was a man of his region named Balaam, who Balaam had some sort of, scholars debate exactly what, what it was. I think he probably maybe had some kind of demon possession, but he was a diviner, which meant he was able to basically cast spells and almost had some kind of supernatural power to him. And he was known for this, so Balak pays him, offers him a ton of money to curse Israel. He says, I want you to come and curse these people so that they don't take over my land. Now, Balaam uh, is actually met by God, and God approaches him and says, don't you dare do it. These are the people that I have blessed. Don't you dare curse what God has blessed. And so, Balak gives Balaam all these opportunities to curse the people, curse the people, and he, at least three times, I think it was maybe five times, but at least three times he says no, and not only does he not curse them, but he actually blesses them, and it makes Balak really mad. But then something interesting happens at the end of the narrative. All of a sudden, the narrative very abruptly shifts to where, after all that happens, it just turns on a dime, and what we have is the Israelite men are engaging in gross sexual relationships with the Moabite women, and then the women are utilizing that new stronghold they have on the men, and they corrupt them into worshiping and practicing the religion of the Moabites. And in there, now Israel has essentially been made ineffective. They no longer have that desire to take the land because they're part of the land now. They've assimilated into the new culture. And what's interesting is that numbers later on in the book and I would argue here as well, tells us whose idea was that. And it was Balaam's. So although he refused to practice divination and curse Israel, he said, I can do something that's just as good of a curse. I won't, I'll obey God. I won't technically curse him. But I know what you can do, which will essentially be the same thing. And he knows there's something, especially among men, that is so powerful, it essentially is indistinguishable from a spell or a charm. And that is the uncontrolled sexual lust of men. That lust, that sin can be so powerful that it's essentially the same thing as being charmed, being cursed, being under a spell. He says, if you want a spell, just go after that. Men can't control themselves. So what do they do? They send in seductive Moabite women and then it's all over after that. Now the men are engaging in sexual immorality and what does that lead to? Why don't you come worship our gods with us? Okay. And Jesus says, that's happened in your midst. That same thing has happened in your midst. Why? Because what are the two things that the Nicolaitans, their theology, what does it lead to? What are the two things we are told that they are guilty of? Eating meat, sacrifice to idols, and practicing sexual immorality. The church was doing these things, but then in a bizarre world, was simultaneously turning around as Christians and standing strong for the Christian faith. It's a very bizarre set of circumstances. And by the way, that's why we need to interpret this, this idea of uh, eating food sacrificed to idols. 
Because this phrase is found a lot of times in the New Testament. This issue is dealt with. And the context matters a lot. So let me say something just in case you're confused. Because in 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with the Corinthian people. Specifically in regards to eating food sacrificed to idols. And he tells them, you are allowed to do that. But the context was different. What was happening in Corinth was what they meant by food sacrificed to idols. Is the pagans would sacrifice their, they would do their rituals. But then they would say, well, you know what? We've got all of this meat, right? We've killed all these animals. We might as well make a profit off of it. And so they started selling that meat. And some of the Corinthians were buying it. And then other Corinthians were saying, no, 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 you can't eat that meat. That was used in a pagan ritual. And so half the church was saying, no, if the meat was used in a pagan ritual, you can't eat it. And the other half was saying, it's a dead animal. I can eat what I want. And Paul addresses them, and Paul gives them a twofold answer. He says, there's, there's no, their gods are false. The meat's not corrupted. Their gods don't even exist. Eat the meat. You can eat the meat. But, he says, if it causes one of your brothers to stumble, then even though you have the right to eat the meat, you should not do that. And so a lot of people read that and they think there's a contradiction here, but I think the easiest way out of the contradiction is to read this in light of Numbers, not in light of 1 Corinthians. And what happened in Numbers? They weren't just eating the meat, they were actually engaged in the sacrificial process. In other words, they were going to church with the Moabites. That wasn't happening in Corinth. They were going to church with the Moabites. And Paul, or forgive me, Jesus is essentially saying, this is happening in your midst. You guys claim the faith and you're standing strong, but you don't realize you're actually living like Nicolaitans, not like Christians. You're compromised. You are compromised. And by the way, speaking of 1 Corinthians, a very similar thing happened in the Corinthian church in chapter 6. Where Corinthians, the Corinthians were continuing to practice in the sexual immorality of the Roman worship system. And their excuse was that our bodies are fallen, our bodies are sinful, and Jesus is going to come and give us a new body one day. So there's no such thing as sinning against your body. You can't sin against your body because your body is sinful and God's going to just discard it and give you a new one anyway. So they thought that they could do these sexual immoral practices because that's a sin against the body. And that's why Paul steps in and says, no, your body is a temple. Your body is holy. Your body is the dwelling place of the spirit. You need to honor God with your body. You can't do that anymore. So it's, it, I know it sounds crazy for us to think of Christians engaging in wild sexual immorality and still giving them the benefit of the doubt and considering them Christians, but that's because we're coming at it from our cultural perspective. This is a brand new fledgling faith. They don't have 2,000 years of history like we do. So there were Christians that were easily deceived and thinking, yeah, we can do these things. It's not at conflict with Christianity. And so Jesus comes in and says, no. This is not my religion. This is not my standard of living. This is Balaam's standard of living. This is the Nicolaitan standard of living. It's not mine. He calls them out for their compromise. They are not living up to the faith that they are defending so well. And so that's why he tells them in verse 16, what do they need to do? They need to repent. Repent. And if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say, I will come to you soon and war against you. He says, I will come to you and war against them. 
So Jesus says, you've got two options. The people in your church who are functioning as Nicolaitans, they're claiming to be Christians, but they're functioning as Nicolaitans, they need to repent. They need to, become, they need to start acting like Christians. And if they don't, you need to disassociate with them. And if you don't disassociate with them, and if they don't turn around, I'll come in and do it for you. That's a terrifying thing. The next time somebody asks you, why does your church practice church discipline? That sounds so harsh. Tell them, because I don't want Jesus to come in with a sword. I don't want Jesus to deal with these people. I don't want Jesus to deal with us. It is out of fear of God. Jesus says, you repent, you disassociate, or I'll do it for you, and I promise you don't want me to do it for you. This is like the dad, right, with a stubborn child. You can turn around or you're going to get spanked. Trust me, the turning around is going to be way easier than the spanking. I will war against them if you don't repent. And so this, I think, causes all of us to ask that simple question, not just as a church, but as individuals. Am I living a compromised Christianity? Is there any area of my life right now that is really not Christian? You see, you might be able to stand up to demons and win debates on Facebook and memorize a lot of scripture. But that is in no way an indication that your life is on track. I think all of us need to examine ourselves and truly humbly go before the Lord and say, what are some of the areas of my life where I have allowed teachings like Balaam's and the Nicolaitans, teachings like secular 21st century America to dictate my worship and how I live? Are we engaging in sin and calling it Christianity? And those are the two examples that we are left with from Pergamum. We are reminded to be courageous. We are reminded not to be compromised. And so he ends in verse 17 in a fairly similar way that he does with all of the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, what is all this symbolism here? It's actually very difficult to work through. You'll find a lot of different interpretations among different Christians as to what precisely each of these mean. My take is that the hidden manna is spiritual nourishment from our union of Christ. We know that the manna in the wilderness was to nourish the Israelites in their wilderness and then Jesus says that I am the manna I have come to give you life I have come to nourish you and so we too as pilgrims in this earth are sort of Christians wandering in the wilderness and we need manna and Jesus is promising that those who are faithful those who love me those who believe in me I will continue to sustain you and nourish you with a spiritual nourishment a hidden manna if you will but then he also says that I will give you a white stone with a new name that only you know. And I think this is a reference to the completion of the regeneration. You have been made new and we're all in this process of being made new. But that process is finally culminated. Our adoption is finally complete on the judgment day when we receive new bodies and entirely new natures. In other words, this is a reference to having a new identity and being made new. I, I say this because, uh, number one, that's the new name. Your, your name is a symbol for yourself. A new name is to essentially be a new person. 
That's why we can say things like, we lift high the name of Christ. We can sing songs like, how glorious your name. Well, what are we saying? Are we saying it's just the title on a piece of paper that's amazing? He's got a great name. I don't know about the guy, but that name is awesome. No. To say great is your name is say great is you. To be given a new name is to be made a new person. You have a new identity. And there's this uh, idea of it is not only you have a new name, but it's one that God gives you and that only you two know. So it's this identity in Christ, a special union with God. The reason I get all this is I, I think that um, what's interesting is in, in the Old Testament, the manna is described as being white, like the bedellium stone. And so the manna and the white stone, I think, are connected here. And in the Old Testament, that connection is made with a bedellium stone, which was one of the stones that the high priest wore on his outfit. And the names of Israel were said to be written on these two different stones. And so I think there's this beautiful idea here that God is saying to those who overcome will be made new creatures. You will receive new glorious bodies and I will claim you and you will know me in an intimate way. In other words, I'm not saying this is a direct quote from Isaiah 62 or even necessarily a direct reference, but I think the idea is the same. Let me read to you two verses from Isaiah chapter 62. Isaiah prophesies this, The nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. This is speaking to Israel. What does he say in Isaiah 62? He says, one day you will be redeemed. And what happens when you're redeemed? You will be made a beautiful jewel and that jewel will be in the hand of God and you will have a new name and a new glory. I think all of this is symbolic of our final regenerative state. When you are finally and totally made new and given a new glorious body, you are finally one with the Lord in its completed sense. And Jesus is reminding these people that if you want spiritual nourishment from Christ, if you want the regenerative, restored state, you need to persevere with me. You need to repent and keep believing. And it is for those who persevere to the end who receive these final culminated blessings. So we must be a courageous church. We must be a compromised church. But I want us to end with this. I want us to, to think of this in, 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 a, in a way that's maybe not quite so simple, although there is glory in the simple. I want to rephrase the two principles that we've been talking about with something that I think is a little bit more helpful in terms of how we think about it. Because I was so shocked by this church. You see, in Ephesus, their issues made sense. There seemed to be a correlation, right? They were fighters. They were fighting false teaching. They were fighting the culture. They were fight, fight, fight. And so it made sense to me that they would become hardened and loveless. Like those two things seem to go together. But to me, these two things don't. Like there doesn't seem to be a correlation. The more courageous you are, the more prone to sexual promiscuity you are. I, I don't get that. That they seem to be just isolated strengths and weaknesses. But, but what, what confused me even more was, how is it that the same heart is capable of saying, to staring Satan down, metaphorically, and overcoming horrible persecution, the strength and courage of that, how did that not apply to the same strength and courage needed to say no to the Nicolaitans? 
It's just, it's so bizarre to have a church that's so courageous yet so unholy. And I think that it reminds me of this principle. Sometimes our greatest threats are not the most obvious threats. Sometimes the biggest danger to a church or to a Christian is not what you would expect. You see, when, when we think of the church is in danger, we think of the obvious stuff like persecution. Rome is coming after them. Rome is killing some of their people. That's the biggest threat to the church right now, right? What could be a worse threat? This church is barely surviving. Their people are being slaughtered in the streets. But apparently that wasn't their biggest threat. They were able to withstand that. What was their biggest threat? Their own selves. You see, for some people, standing up to persecution is actually not that hard. This is what we train for, right? Some people are almost excited for it. I've met Christians that almost seem disappointed that they haven't been persecuted. It was what we trained for, right? We read all of these hero stories. You know, next week's Reformation Sunday, we hear about the heroes of the Reformation. We hear about the heroes and the martyrs of the faith. And we get so excited to stand up for God. Give me the opportunity. But you have that opportunity every single day. It reminds me of when I used to play football. You probably played sports or did something where, you know, it wasn't that hard to get excited for, for a game. It wasn't hard to look forward to a game, to be focused for a game. You know, so I spent all day, I'm ready for the game. I can't even focus on my schoolwork because I'm thinking about the game. And you get there, you're excited, the emotions are running high, I'm ready for that. You know what it was hard to get excited for? Practice. The gruel of practice every single day. I don't want to go to practice. I want to play the game. You know, it's easy to brace ourselves and prepare ourselves for persecution. But you know what's really hard? To bear your cross every single day. To be holy every single day. To repent every single day. The daily grind of the Christian life is probably far more of a threat to our Christian faith than anything that's going to maybe happen in November. You see, they were able to say no to Rome. They were saying, kill me, take my body, I don't care. But they weren't able to say no to sexual promiscuity. They weren't able to say no to the worshiping the false gods and being cool and friends with all of their community. That apparently is harder and so I think it's an important reminder for us to remember we have the opportunity to be heroes every single day. And it doesn't necessarily look like staring your government down in the face and taking the sword, although it may come to that. And I pray God would give us the grace to do that. But sometimes it looks like just saying no to that temptation. Sometimes it looks like being willing to be humble to admit, I was wrong, I'm not going to do that anymore. To say sorry to your wife. Sometimes those things are the most difficult things to do. And we have to do those things every single day. And the, the, the church in Pergamum, they were willing to, go, to grow slack and lack discernment in those areas, but they rested on, hey, we're the, bad, we're the, we're the tough guys in town. They're coming after us. We've stood strong. Not with the Nicolaitans, you haven't. 
Rome is not the church's worst enemy. The United States government is not our worst enemy. Satan is not even our worst enemy. You want to know who your worst enemy is? You. Your own sinful proclivities, your own sinful desires. You. And so this is an important text to remember that we have a lot of bad guys outside of our church and we, and we need to stand up to them. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to take away their courage. We need to stand up to them. But you are your own bad guy. And sometimes it's easy to say no to Rome but hard to say no to yourself. And so may this be a humble and important reminder that we can be heroes every day. You want to be a great person of the faith? Love God. Pursue Him with excellence. Repent of your sins. That's what makes you a Christian hero. You don't have to be murdered. You don't have to be killed. What's far more impressive is the daily, everyday grind of holiness and love and repentance. And so may God, by the grace of His Spirit, give us the courage and the strength not just to look at our persecutors in the eyes and say no, but to look at our own sinful temptations and proclivities in the eyes and also say no.